Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome two uh, fantastic technology investors to SALT Talks in Joe Lonsdale and Dakin Sloss. Uh, Joe Lonsdale is a general partner at 8VC. He was an early institutional investor in notable companies, including Wish, Oculus, Oscar, Illumio, Blend, Orca Bio, Relate IQ, Joby Aviation, Centego, uh, Garden Health, as well as many others. In 2016 and 2017, he was the youngest member of the Forbes 100 Midas list. Joe is a co-founder of Palantir, a multi-billion dollar global software company, best known for its work in defense and finance. Uh, most recently, he was a founding partner at Formation 8, one of the top performing private funds and the precursor to 8VC. Together, these funds manage a total committed capital base of about three and a half billion, before that, he founded Adapar, uh, which has over $2 trillion managed on its wealth management technology platform, and OpenGov, which modernizes various processes for over 2,000 municipalities and state agencies. He's also a founder of Affinity, Anduin, and Esper. Uh, previously, Joe was an early executive at Clarium Capital, which he helped grow into a large global macro hedge fund. And sorry, sorry for the banging above me. There seems to be some construction going on in the building. Uh, but that's just part of what we get here. Uh, in time the bio is too era. long, John. They're saying, they're saying move yeah. on. We don't want to hear about Joe anymore. Exactly. <laughs> he also worked at PayPal while he was at Stanford. So, and, and that's the condensed bio for Joe, for being honest. He could have gone on for at least five more minutes with all the things that he's done. But we appreciate him packing about, I don't know, $50 trillion worth of value that he's created into that short bio. Uh, so thank you, Joe, for that. Uh, Dakin Sloss is the founder and general partner of Prime Movers Lab. Over the course of the last decade, he's created billions of dollars of enterprise value, including founding two breakthrough startups, OpenGov and Tachius, investing in extraordinary early stage companies like Boom Supersonic, and coaching dozens of prime movers, founders who invent breakthrough scientific inventions uh, to transform billions of lives. And prior to Prime Movers Lab, uh, he served as the founding CEO of Tachius, where he built the leading prescriptive analytics company in the oil and gas industry. And before Tachius, Dakin co-founded OpenGov, where he uh, was the CEO and recruited the core team, secured millions in angel funding and venture capital, and arranged the initial pilot partnerships and launched the world's most advanced smart government platform. Before OpenGov, Dakin built California Common Sense, the premier California open data and government watchdog nonprofit in California could certainly use some common sense. So thank you for doing that, Dakin. Hosting today's talk and making his SALT Talks debut, we're very excited to have AJ Scaramucci, who, as you might have guessed, is a son of our uh, typical host, Anthony Scaramucci. But AJ is an absolute beast in his own right. Uh, he started his career working at Google, then served as an entrepreneur in residence with Peter Diamandis, graduated from Stanford Business School, and has now uh, launched the SALT Fund, which is an incubator focused on life sciences companies. So we're excited to welcome AJ here to his debut on SALT Talks, and hopefully he comes back uh, for many more episodes, although he's busy building about seven different companies. So we try to squeeze him in in his spare time. 
So with that, AJ, I'll let you uh, take it away for the interview. Thanks, John. Yeah, so I think what's unique about today's interview is we actually have two friends on the line, people that really know each other very intimately, have a longstanding history with one another. I'd like to start there, actually. I'd like to start with how you guys met, as well as how you guys came up with the idea for OpenGov and, and sort of uh, created that together. I mean, Joe or Dagan, feel free to jump in there. Yeah, well, I remember Dakin was one of the one of the kind of brighter, more ambitious people at Stanford. You're not that much younger than me, but it felt like you were at the time. I feel like it was like- I, I want to pretend I'm a lot younger than you because the bios really make it seem- <laughs> I, think, I think you may be a decade <laughs> younger than me, that's fair. But uh, but Dakin, you know, you know, I, we, we spent a lot of time meeting the top talent as a Stanford, the different various groups, entrepreneur groups and policy groups there. And Dakin and I got along right away. He had a lot of strong opinions and he wanted to, he wanted to do big things. And, and we, we became partners very quickly in, in a lot of different schemes. Yeah, I, I was just really lucky to have Joe as a mentor who's a bit further down the path uh, and building amazing things that really help people transform their lives. And uh, I certainly couldn't have created the things that I've gotten the privilege of uh, working on over the last 10 years without learning and absorbing lots of uh, lessons from uh, Joe's successes and failures before me. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you guys both have... Uh, dabbled is not even the right word. You've, you very much so have been intimately involved in building companies uh, in the sort of GovTech space, whether it be OpenGov or Palantir. Uh, do you, this seems to be like a, a generally under um, kind of invested in area in venture capital. It's, it's, it's a very tough area. It's a very tough area to build companies. And I'm I probably would have, I'd probably be, you know, in some ways wealthier even today if I had not spent time in, in GovTech. But not that we're not going to make money in GovTech. It's just, it's very hard to do. I think, I think Dakin and I are both very mission-driven people. We both see problems in the world and we say, we're going to go, we're going to fix those problems. And obviously, you know, the way, the way our firm looks at it is there's conceptual gaps in the world. There's how things should be working and there's how things are working right now. And government has some of the very biggest conceptual gaps. So it's a really compelling area to work. And we do a lot of other things in healthcare where there's lots of big gaps. We do a lot of things in logistics and deep tech, but the government has so many big gaps that yeah, something that's really appeals to me to fix. And I think it's really important to note also that in today's day and age, government is for better or worse involved in almost every industry in the world deeply. And so uh, whether it's a direct gov tech company or not, if you're working in energy, transportation, infrastructure, defense, manufacturing, life sciences, all of these things involve huge aspects of interfacing both with domestic international governments and all of the challenges and opportunities that come with that. That's true. Dick and I are doing some fun things in defense. That's true. We've invested on some things there lately. There's a, there, there are a lot of good opportunities there, especially. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a natural segue. So, I mean, both of you guys are at the helms of, of your own funds. Uh, you have very, you said you're very intrinsically motivated, which, which is very obvious given both of your track records and pedigrees. Can you articulate to us in a cohesive way what the investment thesis is uh, for both prime movers as well as as HVC and kind of paint us a picture of you know this year and, and, and sort of this this out of this fund, what you are investing in today and why? Deacon, why don't you take that first? Sure, yeah. So as uh, John said, our mission is to invest in breakthrough scientific inventions that have the ability to transform billions of lives. We're basically investing in six areas, energy, transportation, infrastructure, manufacturing, 
uh, human augmentation and agriculture. And basically the unifying theme across all our investments is that there's some sort of like fundamentally very valuable intellectual property, some sort of scientific breakthrough that's been invented that opens up a big new market opportunity. And I think uh, when I talk about Prime Movers Lab, it really boils down to two things that we're doing that I think are quite unique in the context of venture. It's this exclusive focus on scientific startups. And then it's really a service mindset. We treat our founders like customers and we have a whole set of portfolio uh, support resources, executive coaches, talent partners, folks helping with PR, government relations, marketing, to make sure that the least useful thing we're providing to our uh, companies is capital. And uh, I will give a shout out to APC. I think there's been a lot of inspiration because they're one of the few other firms that does this, I think, in a way that uh, really supports founders so that they're not just building great companies, but they're learning and personally growing themselves and enjoying the process of building companies as well. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, feel, feel free to. Yeah, sure. So, so eight VC, uh, you know, we do, we do a lot of, we do a lot of different things. I think the number one, a role of a top venture capital firm is to focus on knowing where the very top technology talents going and what they're doing. And, and so that's and being a place where they're going to come knock on your door and they know who we are. And so, you know, Dakin's getting to this place with his firm too, with all his success. We, we've been lucky to have a lot of things work. So in the last seven months, we've had eight companies go public. When you have these things you've backed early that are now going public, there's lots of people there doing new things. And so I think number one is we're managing talent. I say, if I'm honest about my job, I think it's more fun to talk about the macro stuff and, and, the, and, the, and the tech stuff, but managing talent and having talent want to work with us, that's one. I think number two, the question we always try to ask is what's possible now that was not possible five years ago. If you look at the role of venture capital in the global economy and, and what, why do we invest in venture capital? It's because it's kind of like, it's helping the economy evolve. It's exploring new ideas. And you couldn't, you couldn't have Uber or Lyft or DD or ride sharing work before the mobile phone existed. Once it existed, those are great investments. Now that this existed for 14 years, you're not gonna make hundred X on those investments anymore. A venture capitalist should not probably be looking at that area. And so, so the big question always for us is what's possible now that wasn't possible before. And, and there's, there's a lot of good answers. Probably the most compelling answer might be the Renaissance in biology, uh, but there's still a lot of things with big data and cloud and AI uh, applied to big industries processes. There's a lot of things with how healthcare works and how risk works and how you can use incentives and accountability and markets in different parts of healthcare to, to deliver healthcare better with preventative medicine more affordably to everyone. Obviously a big, big issue for our country. And so, so, so wherever, wherever you see gaps in the world where something new is possible or something, a better way of doing things are possible, that's venture capital's job. And if you find those areas, you own networks, you own platforms, and you're betting on the top people to go after them, you're, you're going to make a lot of money. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, bo both of you seem to have a real keen interest in life sciences and biotech. And this is you know, something that has its origins perhaps in Boston, but is very much so now permeated Silicon Valley. Software is infecting wetware for the first time meaningfully. That's it's, right. A lot of biology is becoming information science in, in a lot of areas. Absolutely. So I, I'd love to uh, kind of lean into this topic a little bit more. I know, Dakin, uh, you've been investing pretty aggressively here, uh, both in response to COVID-19 with companies like, like COVAX, as an example, which I obviously know super well, given uh, Mr. Diamandis. Uh, but I'd love to hear from you where in that landscape you're seeing opportunities in the near term, long term, whether it be synthetic biology, mRNA, or some, something else. Well, yeah, as you said, uh, COVAX is one of our portfolio companies. They have uh, nearly $3 billion in vaccine sales this year and hopefully can play a, a big role 
in ending the global pandemic, not just here in the U.S., but with a vaccine that can actually be distributed safely, effectively, uh, cost efficiently to underdeveloped uh, parts of the world where a lot of their business is. Um, beyond vaccine development, we're, we're really looking at three areas in life sciences, neuroscience, longevity, and agriculture. And uh, those are all obviously very broad areas, but we have companies like Alevian that have identified the underlying growth factor that's responsible for uh, parabiosis, where basically young blood can have rejuvenative effects for uh, older uh, organisms or people. And uh, they're commercializing that first for targeting stroke recovery, uh, but also for other indications as well. We've got companies in uh, the neuroscience area, things across uh, brain-computer interfaces. One of the areas I'm most excited about right now, actually, is the application of psychedelics for the major mental health problems that we face as a civilization. I think there's 300 million people around the planet that have some sort of mental health challenge. And we've got compounds that have thousands of years of historical data, not necessarily scientific data, but anecdotal data that uh, indicate they could provide some value there. Um, and then in the world of agriculture, we have a major portfolio company, Upward Farms, which is uh, using aquaponics rather than hydroponics to produce leafy green vegetables in urban areas at higher yields than anybody else in the market can, um, so that it can actually be like economically scalable. And uh, when you look across each of these areas, they fit that criteria that Joe was talking about of major things have changed, particularly in the application of computation to these areas, but in other discoveries and breakthroughs that have happened within these fields that mean they're on the cusp of major commercialization revolution, not just scientific revolution. Definitely. Definitely. And, and, and on, this, on this topic of you know, in, in the, the, the subset or matrix in there, we find longevity, which is uh, an interesting sub area. This is an area that uh, you know circles around the nine hallmarks of aging, or in fact that aging is the fundamental indication that it is a disease in and of itself. This is something that is becoming perhaps more popular with nodes like Peter Diamandis or Dr. David Sinclair or you know whomever. Is this, is this an area, Joe, that you also are, are seeing a kind of uptick in, in, in momentum, like actually longevity, preventative medicine, et cetera, as opposed to some of this indication-driven traditional biotech? Yeah, no, it's, 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 definitely, it's definitely becoming a hotter area. I'm, our fund is focused on things that maybe, maybe sometimes, sometimes we don't take as much technology uh, is technology risk and very new technology, but, uh, but we, but, but we, but, you know, but I think there's a lot of things that are going to work there and they're going to be really valuable. So we're not, we're, we're probably not like working you know, on my end on, on like nuclear fusion or on things that will prevent, you know, death or et cetera, in a quite extreme way, but there's lots of things we're working on, for example, in like going after cancer and going after Alzheimer and cell, cell therapy, that are all kind of part of this longevity way that as we understand these things better, you know, for example, yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated right now with like, you know, the whole idea of like applying Yamanaka factors, which are like these factors you trigger in a cell that'll put it back to being basically age zero. And, you know, one of our more advanced companies that's raised billions of dollars now is applying, you know, one of the things it does is it applies these to white blood cells and it turns a white blood cell, you know, turns back into a pluripotent stem cell, turns back into a young white blood cell, suddenly it could fight cancer better. So if you're able to fight cancer better and it's working, you're using a mechanism that's changing something back to age zero, you know, why not in theory, could, couldn't you change other parts of the body back to age zero? So, I mean, so it's actually a really fascinating age where we're just right in the middle. We call it a renaissance because every month or two we're, we're using these new tools with gene editing and, and with cell therapy and with 
you know, synthetic biology to discover how life works at a fundamental level and to try things and to learn from it. And so, yeah, I'm very, very bullish on the progress that's going to be made. I, I, I tend to take like, you know, and I know, I know Dickens done a great job of this too, take things that are possible to do now, as opposed to things that are like really kind of pie in the sky that might happen in 10 or 15 years. Uh, but even those things that are possible to do now are, are advancing the area, which, which will lead to these great results, hopefully. Definitely. And, and what would you say, which, which uh, kind of area in this life science theme is not being invested in the way it should be? Like which area is, is actually in fact you know, undervalued? Or where, where I think there's it? too much, I think there's too much AI for drug discovery as just like a default thing where there's like kind of exploring. There's just, there's, there's just a lot of like, we're going to use AI to discover drugs. And like, I actually think, I actually think AI is more useful for like in, in these much more narrow applications of helping. So I think AI like to tweak how antibodies work and, and it, we already have something working, you're making it work better or AI, AI to tweak how certain things are understood with the tools. Like there, there, there's a, there, there's a applications of AI that would require you to have the best scientists to be working hand in hand with the scientists very closely, as opposed to these kind of pure tech companies started by a lot of my friends who may be the best in the world in computer science, but don't necessarily have a PhD in biology. So I think, I think having to go to the forefront and spend the two or three or four years it takes for a smart person to really get to the forefront of some of these areas of science, at least understand what's going on, and then help them by applying AI, that's not helping nearly enough. That's not happening nearly enough. People are working too independently from scientists. Sure. Yeah, I think often at the, the beginning of these revolutions or renaissances, it can feel like from a public perspective that it's overhyped and that like already too much money is going into bio. I think it's almost always though the exact opposite, which is it's extremely underhyped. So if we like look forward 15 or 30 years, uh, I think people are going to think it's a joke, the things that people were dying of, the things that people were sick from, the things that people were struggling with. And our, our, our current understanding of the human body, of physiology, and of how to prevent disease rather than respond to issues that pop up is, is so unsophisticated relative to what's actually possible now based on the latest things that are happening in labs. So I, I would say almost universally, all of these things are being underinvested in. Um, specifically, I would say neuroscience in particular. I think neuroscience is a relatively novel and new field and we're still very limited in our understanding of the brain. And if you project forward uh, 20, 30 years, what is gonna have like made a massive difference in like how human beings are functioning on this planet and how we're expanding as a civilization and species, neuroscience is clearly gonna play a crucial role there. And we're just at the very beginning of that wave of biofunding flooding into neuroscience. Yeah, I see that, that resonates with me as well. You know, maybe switching topics a, a bit here. In a world where capital is unbelievably abundant, where sovereign wealth funds, pensions are coming down and doing direct investments, where there's truly hundreds of billions of dollars now per year being injected into venture capital at every stage, how do, you, how do each of you differentiate yourselves to, in the eyes of the entrepreneur? Why do they take your capital, which they do very often, as opposed to an, another firm? I'd love to love to unpack that. I mean, Joe, if you want to start, go for it. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, a lot of cases, they or their close friends have worked with us over the last couple of decades, and they know who we are. They know what we could do. Um, you know, you you got You got to find ways of creating unfair advantages for your entrepreneurs. Building a company is is just fundamentally a very very hard thing to do, and the world's usually against these new things and usually crushes them. And, you know, it takes amazing perseverance. And so any advantages you can get 
are really key. And so the question is, what are types of advantages you can create? And like, obviously, if you have a brand and you have great people around you, that's one advantage. Um, you know, a lot of our firms, we spend a lot of time figuring out how to build new advantages. So for example, we do a lot in logistics is another area we're very bullish on how it's changing the next 10 years. And, you know, so, you know, five years ago, we went, we got to know the guys who ran logistics for four or five of the biggest companies over the last couple of decades, like guys who used to run it for Walmart or guys who used to run UPS or guys who used to run it for Coke. And we got to know these guys who made them our senior advisors. We got them involved in the firm. And then we got to know a bunch of their friends with the conferences we'd host. And so we got to know 30 or 40 of the CEOs, CCOs at these places. You know, we hired a couple of them as, as senior execs and residents. And suddenly we're part of the part of the network with these leaders. And so now, you know, we, we introduce all of our our companies in that space to them. They give them they help give them feedback, they give them deals. Now we're looking to build something new in the space, we're looking to partner with it. People know that we're the guys who know everyone there. And so, so you, you do this in a handful of industries and you start to get some pretty big advantages. And the more wins you have, the more the industry trusts you, the more the industry is like gonna look at and gonna help and gonna do deals with your new things. And of course, you, you spread you spread the upside around, you got these companies, make people advisors. So I, I think I think a big part is just the autocorrelation of venture capital is this very, very cool thing. So as you have more wins, you get more people on your side and, and, and you have that. So I, th- I, think, I, think, I think that's a big part of it. Um, but just in general, you have, to, you have to have people who are running the firm who are admired and who are liked and who are, you know, ideally in the same kind of like, you know, spectrum of the people building the company. So our, our firm, even though we, ha- we have 40 people, you know, most of them are actually young entrepreneurs. Most of them have been entrepreneurs who are our partners. And for us, that works really well. There's different ways of doing it. But, uh, but, but you know, you, you have to create some way in which these people relate to you and which they see they're getting advantages from working with you and are excited to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Joe said. I, I'll highlight just one of the things that we focus on. So uh, one of our partners is Tony Robbins, who's one of the world's leading business strategists and executive coaches. And basically in business, 80% of success is psychology, 20% is mechanics. And so uh, when you talk to early stage VCs, I think everyone recognizes the biggest risk any company faces is the founder's psychology, the founder's development, the founder's leadership, and the dynamics across that leadership team. Um, that being said, I think it's really under-focused on how do you actually mitigate that risk? And so we have full-time executive coaches, we have leadership training programs, we have a whole suite of things that we're doing. And, you know, when we originally started the firm, I kind of figured that would attract, uh, you know, less experienced founders uh, more than it would attract the more experienced founders. But I think the more experienced founders recognize how unique that is actually, and serial entrepreneurs recognize that if they can get like a 1% improvement in how they're functioning, that can translate to a 10 or 100% improvement in how the business is functioning. And so we've really had a lot of serial entrepreneurs love that kind of focus on their personal development and their expansion as a means to uh, serving the company. And I think that's attracted a lot of founders to us because we're, we're genuinely... Uh, I think this is something Joe, Joe and I and AVC and Prime Movers Lab have in common. We're entrepreneurs who happen to be running venture capital firms. And we're, we're not just investing in cutting a check. We're rolling up our sleeves and helping to build the business. We're not like taking control or being a pain in the butt to deal with. But we're, we're doing whatever it takes to help make sure that the company succeeds. And that's one example of the kinds of services that we offer. And we've, we've built the firm like a startup where it's like the founders are our customers. What are they most wanting? And then we figure out how to deliver that to them and build our team to deliver that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think both of you guys have done clearly an, an extraordinary job. And, you know, Joe, I mean, I, I've seen I've seen firsthand uh, I mean, perhaps Dakin is a, a great example, right? There, there was a, a real relationship there. There was a, a company built together. And, you know, all these years later, you're on this salt talk, you're interacting with each other. I'm sure you're. Yeah, you got to keep you got you got the, the best people you work with. You got to keep learning from each other and you, and you got to 
and find things to do together. And we both, he's, Dixon's found a lot of great things and people that have really benefited our firm. And we've tried to bring him into some things as well. And that's, that's how this world works. It's a very positive sum world in venture capital. If you have a big network doing this, that's, that's your advantage. Definitely. So I was uh, catching up with uh, Zach Rifkin uh, a month ago or so, and I've seen uh, a little bit of, I've seen some, some action on the interwebs related to this uh, city, apparently, that is being built. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Awesome. Uh-oh. So I'd love to get into that, Joe. What is going on with that? Please. please. Oh, you know, it's, it's, we're still exploring ideas. It's, we're still exploring ideas, but, you know, a lot of us, yeah, I wrote this kind of obnoxious article in the Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed uh, that a lot of you may have read uh, about, you know, leaving California, even though we love it, because there's just so many things that are broken and so many things that are hard about doing business and hiring people there. And, and, uh, and there's just lots of levels of problems that are hard to fix. And so a lot of my friends have moved to Texas. We have obviously, you know, publicly Elon Musk is here and nearby who we, we do a lot with. And there's, there's like, you know, I don't even know, I shouldn't mention all the names because I don't know who's in public, who's not in public, but a lot of prominent entrepreneurs have moved here. It's usually either Texas or Jackson Hole or, or Dakin is or Miami pretty much, maybe a couple other places that a lot of these entrepreneurs have moved to. And, you know, a lot of people are realizing they can work from anywhere, but they still want to be around these clusters, you know, of other entrepreneurs, other talent. They still want to spend time with them. I was in Jackson Hole with Dakin and a bunch of friends even just a week ago, you know, you know and teaching my three-year-old how to ski, but also there for, for business purposes as well. And, and so there's just, there's just all these, there's just always people on the move. There's always people looking for better places to live and build and work. And a, and a big gap in the world, we think, is how cities work. So we talk about our job is to identify gaps. You know, obviously government could be better. It's not just the government itself. It's actually like the way the city's designed, the way the city works. I don't believe in this whole status thing where you could design a city top down exactly. This doesn't make sense to me. I'm very much about free society and, and organic and, and evolution. But I think you can give a skeletal structure and order and, and ways the city works that, that make it work a lot better. So I have quite a few friends who are, you know, names you would know that we've been chatting for a while about this. And, you know, we may buy a bunch of land somewhere and, and decide to build one. And, you know, the boring company to me makes it even more exciting because we can dig, it sounds crazy, but we have, we've proven now we've digging these very, very cheap tunnels. And if you could do really inexpensive tunneling, that could really change how a city works. Now access to a city works economically, even as it gets more expensive for everyone. So would would love to make a kind of world defining city that teaches the 21st century, how these things should work and, and do that with friends. Are you keen on selling some flamethrowers to, to back? Uh, and, you know, uh, yeah, I think Elon's extremely clever about how to fund these things. And so I, it's one of those things where I think we make, if we, especially if we have the right people like him involved and, and, we, and we get a city going that's designed properly and we make it lower cost of living, we make it easier to access, we make it cool in lots of different ways. I mean, you can think about underground speakeasies with the boring company, right? Who knows? There's all sorts of fun stuff we could do with this stuff. I'm yeah. not sure we're going to have to worry too much about funding it. You know, I, th- I think people are going to want to come right away. So it's, it's a matter of finding the right place and right leadership and, and the right time because all of us are so busy building what we're building. But I think it'd be really fun to work on something like that. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, b- both of you guys, uh, as well as myself, have origins in Silicon Valley, right? I mean, you guys all went to Stanford here. We kind of started our careers there and so on and so forth. But now we're dispersed. I mean, I'm spending most of my time in Miami. And but, but, but we have this network, so we know each other because we're from the same networks and, 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 we're, and we're excited to work together. Obviously, I'd love to do more with you, AJ. And so there's like, and so there's, I, th- I think it's an advantage because we do have these networks we've built. That's why we can be dispersed, you know? Definitely. But is, is it, I mean, the fact that you're in Austin and you're in Wyoming, is it, have we gone past a sort of event horizon in, in the Bay Area such that it is 
it's kind of like a point of no return. Like, are, are people truly believing? I mean, I, we, you can see in the news, we've got 70, 75,000 people leaving the state of California in fiscal year 2020. That seems to be a trend that has, if anything, accelerated into 2021. Is this here to stay? Is California uh, kind of on the decline? I'd love, you know, Dakin, you know, if you want to jump in and, and uh, answer that. I mean, to put it bluntly, California has been mismanaged for decades. Uh, in any business, if you spend dramatically more and commit to dramatically more obligations in the future than what you're receiving in revenue, you go bankrupt. And uh, we are running a grand experiment at a societal level about, you know, not just at the state level, but at the federal level, how, how much can we outspend our means and how long can we survive doing that? And California is the, the leader, unfortunately, in that. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it ends well. Now, none of us can predict when or exactly how, but I, th I think the much more interesting and exciting story than California's decline is the rise of so many other places. And I think what, uh, you know, I, I moved here three years ago, kind of a little before, I guess it was trendy to, <laughs> to leave the Bay Area. And it, already at that point, you were seeing this wave of entrepreneurship happening around the country in teams that were being built that were remote teams from day one, where, you know, there might be a particular location that's attractive for manufacturing, like Florida. There might be a particular location that's attractive for customer support, like Salt Lake City. And you uh, you have these tremendous benefits that have happened for the Bay Area um, and for a relatively small group of people from the tech world over the last 20 years. And I think a lot of what's going to happen over the next 20 years is that uh, benefit is going to be much more widespread across the country and to many, many more people because we are literally sitting at this point where almost every single area of our lives is being changed exponentially. And as a result of that, you end up shifting where the economy is. Most of the economy is not going to be sitting in the big companies that were the big companies uh, 30 years ago, it's going to be sitting in startups and uh, self-run businesses and more distributed teams, which I think is exciting for just like the average human being's lifestyle and quality of life. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there seems whether it's human capital dispersion, it's tax considerations, it's sunshine, you know, there's many, many factors that are uh, you know, at play here and have kind of created a little bit of a, a shift away from, from California. Uh, I think on the tax piece, I think it's important to point out because obviously no, no one likes taxes. You know, the two inevitable things are taxes and death. Nobody, nobody wants either of those. We're trying to fix death. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I don't think that like, I think it's, it's miscovered. And often the first question I get, oh, you left because of taxes. Like, no, I'm happy to pay taxes if I receive services in return. I'm not happy to pay taxes and then have my wife walking through the city and find heroin needles and uh, nothing cleaned up. And so it's, it, I think that the issue is much less about taxes and much more about mismanagement of uh, what services are being provided by governments. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've got over a million employees in the government. Uh, there's definitely, it, there's a lot of polarization, some mismanagement, lots of confusion, et cetera. I mean, are, are, are there some things, Joe, that uh, we can, is there a way to inject uh, so, some vigor back in, into the government. Is there a way to get re great human capital, perhaps from Silicon Valley? Oh yeah. oh yeah, no, there's lots of ways. And so, so I have, I have a policy group called the Cicero Institute with 14 full-time people and they're working specifically on issues like this. And it's purely, it's purely how to help society. We're not, it's not, it's not cronyism. In fact, we're trying to stop cronyism in all these areas. What, what you basically need in government 
is you need the you need to make it look more like how a free society works. The way a free society works is we try lots of stuff and the ideas compete and the good ideas win and the bad ideas lose. The problem with how government's set up right now is, is there's not there's not a mechanism for a competition of ideas. And so you'll, you'll have things happening in certain governments. Like the way we run certain prisons is amazing. There's certain prisons with programs where recidivism falls down below 10% because they're doing some really clever, really inspiring work. And there are other ones that are still using shock therapy and have over 90% recidivism. And you're like, you know, in New York State, even they're still doing that in one prison. So you're like, okay, wait a second, like what's happening? And then you realize that the things the government touches, they don't have a mechanism for a competition of ideas that then it's very, very hard to have this fresh thing going in. So like, for example, the DMV in lots of states is a kind of classic example. No one likes going to the DMV for most places. It's horrible. Here's what you do. Let's say you have 20 DMVs in an area. You should put one person in charge of 10, another person in charge of another 10. Just give them a little bit of a budget, ability to hire and fire their top five or six people. That I just like, you know, they actually have the ability to change, change who's working for me running at the top, ability to use the budget to try some innovative things and then give them two years. And, uh, and for each one of them, like, like, you know, we'll see how it works and whoever wins gets, gets a bonus and whoever loses, they get pushed somewhere else in government and someone else gets to try again. And just that competition, you know, just do it based on MPS scores, you know, from the, from the consumers. So just a really basic, you know, setup of a competition of some control, some ability to innovate. It wouldn't be that expensive. You can actually massively improve how DMV works. Same thing for every area of government. It's called accountability and incentives. Without accountability and incentives, you should not expect government to work. It's just going to keep decaying and keep getting worse. And so, this is a very simple idea, but 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 it's one of those things where it's just for whatever reason people are people are really bad at this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I th- this this past year and even still now, the the pandemic COVID nineteen has really pierced through and reared its head and shown a lot of the huge issues we have in our healthcare system and our ability to access supply chains, uh, you know, the, the FDA approval process. I mean, we've truncated some of that. I mean, a 10 to 12 year time horizon to bring a vaccine to market has been shrunk down to a little less than a year, which in and of itself is, is promising. Uh, but as you see the virus kind of continue to, to tear open, not just the United States, but the West, what, what can we learn from this? How do we adapt? What other countries and governmental bodies do you feel are doing a good job? And how can we kind of come out of this as United States 2.0 as in, instead of this perhaps continued decay? I mean, Dakin, if you, you have some thoughts there, jump in. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree with what Joe was saying about looking at how do businesses work and uh, what are the lessons we can take from that? And it's not like every lesson in business is going to apply to government. I don't think that there's like uh, phenomenally inspirational examples of like perfectly run governments in the world today. We, we live in general in a world today where the state is uh, progressively playing a larger and larger role in people's lives rather than individuals and free society. And I think that, that there's, there's kind of these two opposing trends almost, right? One is the amazing technological progress that's happening that has the potential well used to basically solve every major material problem that we face. And then there's uh, these massive societal tensions that are kind of feel in general and the way they're covered in the news, like we're moving backwards. And it feels like those two forces are are against each other. I think ultimately we need to uh, come upon more flexible governance structures that are designed for the world in which we live in. And I think, uh, you know, regardless of where one is on the political spectrum, you don't have to be critical of any particular uh, political orientation to see that. 
the way in which it made sense to set up a country 250 years ago or 100 years ago is super different in a completely globalized world, in a completely interdependent world. And uh, uh, I think there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Joe, I think, is doing a great job uh, exploring ideas in that landscape. And I, 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 I tend to I tend to have a lot of respect for the philosophy of 250 years ago. I think a lot of it was quite quite good. I think it was a high diversity. I, I agree with I agree with the philosophy too. Yeah. I think structurally, though, I mean, basic, basic things. Uh, I. I think it's uh, difficult to imagine, and Joe and I may actually disagree on this one, it's difficult to imagine a couple hundred years from now that we're going to end up with these kind of big mega countries like we currently have, where people identify as American or Russian or Chinese, like that, that uh, in a very global world, that's going to change a lot. And like, I think the, the way travel has been shut down over this period of time has shown how, how crazy and silly that is. Um, I think uh, you're going to end up with communities like the type of city that Joe's talking about building that people organize around. And you're going to end up with simpler, more adaptable structures, which I think is in the spirit of the founding of America, not necessarily in its current implementation. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the linchpin problems that has been percolating or bubbling for some time is wealth inequality, right? If you have assets in an environment where things are imploding, you invest those assets, you will in turn compound them, right? Uh, so that is very much so what has happened over the last 12 months. And you're know, seeing things bubble, whether it's in the cryptocurrency or blockchain ecosystem, or even something like this GameStop run up we've seen is, uh, is a way to uh, stick it to the man, if you will. Or you know, a, lot of people with a lot of assets lost a lot of them in that run up. <laughs> it's very true. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts and, and, and perhaps opine on, on some solutions to this wealth inequality. And yeah. So, so, so I think, I think, I think it's, a, it's always, there's something weird going on there and it's, and it's worth bringing up. I, I tend to, I tend to not like the framing wealth inequality so much as like, how do you, how do you create opportunity for the least fall off? Right. And, and, I, and I think, I think there's a couple of things there. First of all, we do have like a very unfair system in the sense that the Fed is printing a lot of money and is, and is creating a lot of asset inflation. So our government policy is like specifically giving lots of money to those who own assets and to the very wealthy. I think, I think that's probably the biggest source of any, if you're gonna talk about the word inequality is, is just like, we are making assets worth more than they should be thanks to what I think is a very naive monetary policy that, that it's ironic that the Democrats are even more in favor of the Republicans. They're just gonna print like mad. And, 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 and you know, so I, I, it's, it is interesting. It does help the wealthy more, but I think we have to step back and say like, what we really care about is let's look at an index of opportunity and of wealth and of prosperity and of well being for the bottom 20% of our society, the bottom 50% of our society. And first of all, they're way better off than anywhere else in the world. So we're not doing that badly. We're, overall, we're, we're doing quite well on, on, on most metrics there. And you'd much, much, much rather be a bottom 20% socioeconomic person in a country where there's rich people than in countries where they ban billionaires because the countries where they ban billionaires, that's where you get real poverty and you get real mess because there's no one you know, growing and extending the top ideas. And so, so you don't want to be in a poor country where there's not billionaires. But then second, like what do we do to help the bottom of society? And this is where my policy work comes in. The policy group comes in. There's lots of things we've done to accidentally make it tough to be poor in America. We've made cost of living way higher. We've made commutes way longer than they should be. We've, you know, we've, we've stopped building in, in the major cities. So you, if you used to be, if you're poor, you can go to a big city, you work your way up. You can't do that anymore. It's too expensive. So, so a lot of policy that Sister Institute focuses on that I focus on is not about the gap between rich and poor, 
because it's not about bringing down. If I go start another company, like I, like the next year, I obviously Palantir is worth $55 billion. My fund's sending back $3 billion this year. I could go sit on a, that's part of my language, I could go sit on a beach. But if I go start another company instead, I'm increasing wealth inequality. So obviously, obviously wealth inequality is not the right thing to think about because obviously I'm increasing it by choosing not to go to the beach. Like if you really wanted to lower wealth inequality, just force me to go to the beach. That's obviously not good for anyone. It's good for me to create more things. So the question is not how to bring down creators. The question is, what do we do to help the least well off? And there's just so many ways, education, healthcare, cost of living, there's so many policies we can fix there. So that's what I'm focused on is how do we help them? Yeah, I, I agree with Joe's uh, framing on this. I, another thing I would add is I think one thing we don't spend enough time talking about in these kind of polarized topics is we're all part of a shared human family. And, you know, if we think of everyone in the U.S. or everyone in the world as part of a, a human family, one question that's worth asking is if these are all my brothers and sisters, when would I want them to be born in history? Would I want them to be born in feudal society 300 years ago where the richest king in the world couldn't fly halfway across the world to go see a, a movie, much less look at an iPhone and all the incredible abundance that comes with that? Or would I rather that, that king 300 years ago be born today as one of the poorest in America? I'd rather he was born as one of the poorest in America because uh, the, the thing that the inequality framing misses is the average human being's quality of life today is higher than it has ever been at any point in human history. And uh, I think that's extremely exciting. And like, we should, we should feel really good about that. Uh, would it be attractive for the average human being's quality of life to go up further? Absolutely. That's what we're all working on. And that's what we're all investing our time and energy in rather than going and sitting on a beach. And I think that's, uh, that's important. And I think as you, uh, as you have, one of the places this has come about a lot from, frankly, is how the news works today. The news is designed to polarize and shock us and grab our two million year old brain's attention through negativity rather than covering, wow, isn't it amazing like what the average human being's quality of life is? And I'm not saying we should stop working on it. We should absolutely keep working on it. But I think we have to look at why did it change over the last 300 years? And a lot of why it changed over the last 300 years is uh, good systems for innovation and for encouraging people not to go sit on a beach, but to go pursue fantastic ideas and create uh, novel products and services and tools that help the average human being's life uh, quality go up. So I, I feel quite actually optimistic in this area that, uh, and you know, philanthropically, the place that we focus is uh, feeding people abroad, like international countries. I think 10 years from now, you're not going to have people who don't have enough food. Like that's crazy that that's going on. And that that is largely a, a structure due to poor governance in places, not to lack of resources. There's plenty of resources for everyone at this point, and it's a matter of execution and a matter of governance to make sure that uh, people benefit from the tremendous resources that uh, they're already benefiting from at an even higher level. Yeah, I mean, one one, one element to of this opportunity gap, perhaps. Uh, is the IPO market itself, right? So circa 1990s, early 2000s, companies would start and go public in a four to seven year time horizon. Today, uh, it's 10 to even 14 years. Yeah, well, well, it'll be interesting to see if SPACs change that. So as Dakin and I are experiencing recently, some of our companies, got, I think eight, th three of our eight are SPACs. I think Dakin's, Dakin's the king of SPACs right now. They're all chasing him. So uh, there's a uh, yeah, so no, I, I I I agree. I think it's I think it could be faster. There could be rules to make it faster. At the same time, like there's there's just there's lots of other ways we can share benefits. Not everyone has to necessarily invest in or be part of a tech company to hopefully benefit from it. Hopefully, the things we work on and the policy we work on could lead to a better future for everyone, regardless. And I, I do I do think that's a perfect example, right? So part of the reason that 
the IPO market uh, and the time to go public changed so much was it became much more onerous to become a public company. And it's, it's kind of a, you can see all the sides, right? Uh, 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 people in government wanted to protect uh, retail investors from bad actors in public companies, not disclosing things and not reporting things, which there's always going to be bad actors somewhere, but they're usually the minority in almost any system, not the majority. And the rules that were put in place made it much more attractive to stay private longer. And rather than actually protecting the average like public market investor and you know a firefighter or a teacher trying to grow their retirement account over time, uh, the opposite happened in that all the growth started happening in venture capital and growth equity and stuff that the average investor couldn't access. And so I think it's exciting right now that uh, uh, through SPACs, there's an opportunity for the average public market investor to get exposure to much earlier stage, uh, higher risk tech companies than they would have gotten before, which is both going to produce some failures and produce some phenomenal returns and uh, and, and help kind of uh, your average person grow their retirement and participate in the upside yeah. of all these no, things. That's a positive as well. We do need, we do need pensions to outperform. Otherwise we're in trouble. So there's a lot of good stuff we can do there. <laughs> so, I mean, these, these facts very much so seem here to stay. I mean, as you pointed out, Joe, I mean, hims and hers recently went public. I know, uh, momentous is, is, is in the process of going public. Perhaps Joby just announced they're going, my, my, our, my flying car company, they're going to raise a billion. Mm-hmm. It sounds like in the yeah. back. Fascinating. So I, are you guys actually, in fact, putting together your own SPACs at APC? And I've, been, I've been helping some friends. I, I've avoided this so far. There's an argument that we should be. There's so many right now that I'm, I'm just a little bit cautious about it. I think I think it's it's a, it's a mechanism that's a great mechanism. A lot of my smart friends are doing them. They've done very well. My guess is the fees go down a little bit. I, I, I like making money in ways that like are based on creating value over three or five years. Palantir, it's public now it took us 17 years that's a little long maybe i don't want to wait that long for things i do but i think i think making money over a longer period of time is a better framework for doing it so i'm not really too focused on SPACs. that said people are giving away money probably should just nothing wrong with people doing it you know yeah i mean we we've got six different companies going public uh, via this right now and i think the thing that's that's really underreported on about this is the main innovation in SPACs is the ability in the process of going and raising from a SPAC to do what you already do with venture capitalists of showing forward-looking financials. And those forward-looking financials allow people to form a realistic perspective on the business because none of the companies uh, three or four years in look phenomenal from a rear-looking financial perspective. They've been spending money. No, yeah, yeah, the fact that you can do the, the forward-looking is really good. Dagan and Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on, on Salt Dogs. I found this conversation super dynamic, very interesting. We covered a lot of ground. John, feel free to jump in and wrap it up for us. Yeah. Thank you again, Joe and Dakin. And thank you, everybody who tuned into today's Salt Talk. A lot of great information about uh, building companies, trends that we're seeing, as well as how to fix public policy. We sort of covered the whole gamut here. So thank you, guys. And thank you, everybody who tuned in. Uh, Just a reminder, if you missed any of this talk or any of our previous talks, or you want to sign up for future Salt Talks, you can go to salt.org backslash talks. We have our entire archive there, as well as fields where you can uh, be alerted to upcoming talks Uh, on subjects that interest you. A reminder too, please spread the word. We love growing our community, which we've done a great job of during the pandemic, during the quarantine period. We're gonna continue to do these SALT talks even uh, when we return to our in-person conference series. But please spread the word and please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. Our YouTube channel is SALTTube. So please follow us there. We have a fast growing subscriber base uh, that gets alerted to all of our new content. 
So on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off. It was great to have you here for your uh, debut on SALT Talks, AJ. We'll hope you'll come back and moderate one soon. But thank you, everybody, again for joining. We'll see you soon.